Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting our African-American community. And good evening, I'm Gloria Howell, tonight's guest co-anchor. 95% of College Counseling Center directors surveyed before the COVID-19 pandemic said the number of students with significant psychological problems is a growing concern in their centers or on campus, according to the Association for University and College Counseling Center Directors Survey of Counseling Center Directors. 70% of directors believe that the number of students with severe psychological problems on their campuses has increased. The survey also found that anxiety is a top presenting concern among college students, 41.6%, followed by depression, 36.4%, and relationship problems, 35.8%. On average, 24.5% of clients were taking psychotropic medications. However, 19% of directors report the availability of psychiatric services on their campus is inadequate. Directors report that 21% of counseling center students present with severe mental health concerns, while another 40% present with mild mental health concerns. Evidence suggests that the COVID-19 pandemic has generally increased levels of stress and depression among the public. In a survey involving 2,031 participants in the proportion of respondents showing depression, anxiety, and or suicidal thoughts is alarming. Respondents reported academic, health, and lifestyle-related concerns caused by the pandemic. Given the unexpected length and severity of the outbreak, these concerns need to be further researched. To help us better understand the mental state of college students in general and how they appear to be coping during a pandemic era, we've invited three stellar guests. First, we have Dr. Tanisha Riley, an assistant professor in the Counseling and Educational Psychology Department with an appointment in human development. Her extensive research seeks to expand our foundational knowledge of adolescent emotional development and situate that knowledge with a sociocultural context for Black youth. She received her PhD in developmental psychology from Virginia Commonwealth University and subsequently completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Indiana University Center for Research on Race and Ethnicity and Society. Next is Dr. James Brooks, Assistant Professor of Counseling Psychology at Indiana University. Dr. Brooks has expertise in relationship counseling and the impact of race and racism on multiracial families and interracial relationships. As a counseling psychologist, Dr. Brooks has worked with students on campus, both here at IU and at the Tennessee State University around their mental health needs and has worked with students who are counselors in training to help them best serve the needs of students who seek help through the campus student health and at, at IU, the counseling and psychological services. And finally, joining Dr. Riley and Dr. Brooks is recurring Bring It On contributor and sometimes host Professor Amrita Myers. She is a renowned Ruth N. Hall's Associate Professor of History and Gender Studies at Indiana University and a consulting editor of the Journal of American History. 
Amrita is a historian of the Black female experience in the United States, and her research interests revolve around issues of race, gender, freedom, and power, and the ways in which these constructs intersect with one another in the lives of Black women in the Old South. She is also author of Forging Freedom, Black Women and the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum Charleston, 1790-1860. Dr. Riley, Dr. Brooks, and Professor Myers, welcome to Bring It On. Well, we really have a uh, heavy-duty panel tonight. Um, I want to start off by saying, uh, Professor Myers, on November the 9th, you posted something that caught my attention. And I guess you were seeking feedback or, or input about some experiences that you were having with your students. You described uh, problems, major problems with lateness and attendance, just doing basic work, simply not turning in major papers, as well as a huge increase in the number of requests for extensions. And it went on from there. But then what I found really interesting on November the 14th, uh, you, and I want to read this, your, your post from November the 14th. The response to your previous posts came from across countries and grade levels was tragic, but not shocking, if you know what I mean. On Friday, we were told that there is a mental health crisis on our campus. Faculty and staff are beyond burned out, and our students, graduate and undergraduate, are in serious trouble. There's substance abuse, suicidal ideation, severe depression, and more. And campus resources are struggling to assist. Every office from counseling to disability services to the Dean of Students is overwhelmed and slow to respond given the number of requests. Faculty are being asked to help students, but how? What exactly can we do beyond what, we've already, what we're already doing? We are not mental health professionals, but we now find ourselves being tasked with frontline mental health work on top of everything that we already do. Note that we are ourselves struggling to stay afloat and that such caretaking work adversely impacts women and faculty, faculty of color, more so than it does other groups, just as this crisis impacts our students in different ways as well, depending on race, gender, and sexuality. So Professor Myers, before you actually get in that, I wanna ask you, how does this impact faculty of color more so than other groups? And then after Professor Myers, we can just go around the horn. Thanks, William, and thanks for having me on the show. And it's really a pleasure to be here with um, folks who are mental health professionals because that is not my area of expertise, certainly. But those of us who are our faculty have been seeing this um, right on the front lines in the classroom for a while. We had actually expected to see more of this last year when everyone was in lockdown and quarantine. But to our surprise, we actually started to see increasing levels of this this year when students came back to campus. And I think it was because, uh, in my opinion, at least, we, we came back too soon. And also because we were collectively, not just here at IU, but nationally, um, expecting people to behave as if everything was back to normal when it is not back to normal that we were behaving as if it should be business as usual when it is certainly not the case. And to me, it's actually a misnomer to refer to this as a mental health crisis. I think that the mental health response is a response to a number of factors um, that we're seeing anxiety and depression from, from faculty and students and staff to 
a number of different things. Um, and, my, and this is what I'm hearing from my students because I've actually talked to my students openly as a class a number of times throughout the semester. Uh, but you said, how are faculty of color finding this to be a bigger uh, issue? And it's because there are so few of us on this campus. And it means that we are, you know, uh, more often tapped to do a number of things. Certainly we hear about this in terms of service, but it means that students approach us more often for help. They come to our office hours. They come seeking um, help from us. They find us out wherever we are, even if we're not in their home departments and they come to us for help, for advice, they, um, they find that they have nowhere else to go, particularly now when um, CAPS, Counseling and Psychological Services, Disability Services for Students, the Dean of Students offices are so overwhelmed and running often four, five, six, seven, even eight weeks behind that when we submit care referrals, for example, they're not able to get back to students in a timely fashion, not because they don't want to, but because they're understaffed. Um, so it means that professors like myself um, are performing caretaking functions, late, you know, maternal care laboring functions. Women faculty have often um, found that to be the case and women of color more so than other, other faculty across campuses. And so we are burning out at extraordinary, extraordinary um, rates because in addition to taking care of ourselves, taking care of our family members, taking care of people of our children, taking care of people in our families who are ill. Um, we are now having to caretake even larger numbers of students who are suffering mentally, physically because of what's going on in their lives. And so it's, it's um, placing huge amounts of stress on us. Um, but I mean, it has just been incredible to just, it, it's, it gives me such sorrow to see what's happening on our campus and across the country because I've heard it from, um, from my friends and colleagues at a number of institutions that the absenteeism rate is extraordinarily high, as high as 75% in some classes. Um, the withdrawal rates from classes is higher than people have seen it. Certainly I've seen it higher than I've seen it in 20 years of teaching across two or three institutions. Um, students just, um, and what they've expressed to me is that they feel hopeless and helpless, that they don't see the point in coming to class or turning in papers or assignments or, or exams because there might not be a world tomorrow, quite literally, um, to wake up to because of climate change, because of racial violence, skyrocketing economic you know, insecurity, homelessness, you know, f lack of food, literally food insecurity, that there are so many things happening across the board, not just COVID, that, but COVID has exacerbated that. They've seen so many people die, not just globally, but in their own communities and their own families that they literally just don't have the wherewithal to get up out of bed and, and go to class because they're like, what's the point? And they don't trust anyone. They don't have any faith left in their pastors, their elders, their teachers, their parents, and certainly not politicians. And, and why should they? We've not given them any reason to have any faith. And so those of us who are older and seen more, um, we have a little bit of a thicker skin, but for we have to understand that these are, these are still kids, right? Their brains are still developing in so many ways. And from the age of 16 onwards, they've seen so much death and loss and they're on the verge of simply giving up. Wow, interesting. Uh, Dr. Brooks, you wanna comment? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I um, one of the things for inviting me here. I'm happy to have this uh, discussion, and I agree with all the things that have been said. Um, it's no doubt that um, the stressors that folks are facing um, have are multifaceted and are clearly impacting sort of like their wellness um, and how it is that they are able to show up uh, if they're willing to. Um, I think the things that probably uh, for me ring really true um, are certainly uh, returning at a time when we really weren't ready, um, and I think. That means um, there's this, this, this desire to go back to what was perceived to be normal, how things were uh, before. Um, and with that, there's this lack of compassion, self-compassion, uh, the sense that I should be over this by now. I should have adapted. It's been so long, 12 months, um, 20 months uh, at this point, um, that we should have um, developed our skills. We should have adjusted in some way. And I should have the experiences that I want. Um, it's those shoulds, um, expectation the way things should be, that I think really are, are a great harm uh, to individuals, right? This, this understanding of this is the way that things are supposed to go, um, and if they're not going that way, um, this internalization of things that are really external to them. And not everyone faces that to the same degree. Um, there are many folks who are able to externalize those issues, right? They talk, point to the issues of systemic racism, um, climate change, uh, socioeconomic issues and differences that are beyond them. Um, however, those expectations for them to perform still remain. Um, and without uh, that self-compassion, without a community of care and understanding, um, it's no wonder uh, that we see things uh, skyrocketing on the way that they are. Dr. Riley. Uh, of course, um, you know, thanks for, for having me on as well. Um, one of the things that I, I'm sort of hearing from everyone in, in which I agree is that early on, um, it, it seemed as though some uh, were dealing well or we didn't see sort of this um, large influx or this sort of um, idea that students were, were having trouble. But really what the important thing is, is to consider is that oftentimes our, our bodies and our brains, we, we can adapt and respond in the moment. But I think what is really impacting students is that continuous wear and tear. So um, the other day I happened to be talking to students who are part of my research lab and it, it came to mind that the students in my lab who are now juniors have pretty much spent their entire academic career in pandemic mode, right? So um, the spring semester of their freshman year is when everything began, sophomore year, um, they were online. This junior year, we're in class, but we're in mask, right? So something has been adjusted because of the pandemic. And I think in, in the short term and, you know, in the interim of which we, we went online for, for schooling, um, they sort of adapted uh, in, in some ways well, considering all that was going on. Um, but it was that continuous wear and tear on their bodies, on their brains, on that adjustment that I think when they came back to the classroom um, made it really, really difficult. Um, there are, of course, like larger systemic issues um, in, in the U.S. within academia, right, in which they are supposed to perform well. And of COVID, of course, revealed all of that. But in addition to COVID not being addressed, right, because we're still here, we're still in the pandemic, there are new variants, um, all of those issues are also have also not been addressed. And um, so it's the stacking of these particular issues, it's the wear and tear, how long they've been in the circumstance in which their bodies have had to adapt, um, that I think is having a major impact on students for sure. Thank you. Thank you all for sharing that. Um, and I know all of you are in your in your faculty roles. And so I sit on the staff side primarily. I teach as well, but from the Black Culture Center, I'm sitting in the in the staff role. And I'm just thinking about all of the parallels with what you're, what you're saying, um, just more in a more co-curricular type of setting where students are coming in and um, you know, they're expressing grief and just I'm tired, I'm sick of just everything. 
Um, and some days I sit there and I'm like, you know, I am too, you know? And so, um, and I think we get to a point sometimes with, with students where, um, and Marita, to your point where, you know, it's like, I want to help you and I want to make things so much better, but I honestly am at a point where I, I just have run out of gas. Like, I don't, I don't even know what else to, you know what I mean? So I'm just wondering, um, I would love to hear from you all, not even, not only from your faculty seat or from your student interaction seat, but just in general, like, what are you, um, when you hear these feelings of hopelessness and helplessness, like, what are you saying to students? Um, what's your, what's your go, what's your go-to? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump right in, right in on that one. I'm, I'm always on the mindset to, to be absolutely transparent and honest. And my response is, I, I'm right there with you. I, I am right there with you. Um, this struggle um, is difficult. It is an incredible challenge. And as much as I can, in whatever capacities and roles that I find myself in, um, I'm wanting to adjust the climate, the environment, um, the circumstances, so that you can heal or that you can tend to the things that need uh, tending to. Um, certainly as a faculty person that, that related to deadlines or expectations around uh, when assignments are submitted and these sorts of things. As, as a mentor um, that comes to this time that we're meeting, it's, it's you time. Like these are the, the, the intention behind our meetings um, are to tend to you as a whole person. Sure, I have some research agenda. I have some things I'd like to, to get to, um, but in the grand scheme of things, those take secondary um, priority. Uh, to you being well, I mean, and you sort of being here. As much as possible, I try to develop a sense of community. Um, in my prior institution, um, I just shared my heart. You know, this is what I'm, I'm dealing with. This, this is what's frustrating me. This is, these are the challenges that I'm experiencing in this academic space. Um, are you with me? Is anyone else feeling, feeling that way? Right? And that led to um, a series of conversations um, that we had just around, what are people feeling? Um, how are we building a sense of connectedness, of community? Um, I am a strong advocate that uh, relationships are an essential part of um, who we are uh, and our wellness. I believe um, that the, in the introduction mentioned that a good portion of folks when they come to counseling centers uh, are concerned about relationship issues. Um, and I'll say even if they don't frame things as relationship uh, issues, often the difficulties that they have um, are in relationship with someone. If it's a, a power of authority uh, or someone who has some sort of evaluative um, aspect of that relationship with them, um, it, it matters. And uh, the ways in which we can combat or challenge or offset, counterbalance even some of those negative experiences in relationship um, is to find relationships where there, where there is solace um, and that comes through community, and that comes through connectedness. So I, I, I'd say I'm there with you. Um, how can we be in this space uh, together? It's basic empathy. Yeah, I would definitely agree with James. So I, I, I'm probably along with James in, in the latter part. It's, it's that I got into the shop because of mentorship. Um, so I, I love the work that I do. I love my research. Um, in, in some ways, I love teaching, but I really love uh, mentorship with students. Because when I was um, in undergrad, I went to a PWI and I didn't see people who looked like me. Um, and so it, my path to get here, to complete my PhD, to be in this position, uh, was changed because of that. Um, you know, I, I took a few other pathways before I got here. Um, so mentorship is really important to me. So and one of the things that I always ask students is like, well, what, what do you need? Um, because I can imagine how difficult it is for black students um, and students of color to come and talk to someone about a personal issue, right? Um, so on the faculty side, I don't know how people are feeling, but when a student writes to me and says, 
I am having difficulty sitting in class and doing this because of the anxieties that I'm feeling or, or whatever. I know that that could have been a two hour, you know, how do I draft this email to tell someone um, that this is how I'm feeling. Um, so I take that, I take that seriously. I take that they would approach me seriously, knowing that, you know, I'm someone who looks like them and maybe they're, I'd be willing to talk to them. So I always ask them, you know, sort of, uh, what do you need from me? Like, wh what can I do? Um, of course, pointing them to resources, but I really try to ask them, like, what, what is it that you need? Is it that you just need me to understand what you're going through? Is it that you need something in class to help you through class? Um, how can I be as of assistance? How can I help? Um, because to me, that's what I, I see my job as is uh, mentorship is a part of making sure that students have whatever it is that they need to sort of succeed in the classroom and, and sort of beyond. Yeah, I would just, um, you know, echo what Dr. Brooks and Dr. Riley have said that um, I've tried to keep my classroom a very open space. Um, I know that it's been a really hard semester and a hard couple of years for everybody. A um, couple of things that I've done sort of practically is, uh, you know, at the beginning of every class, um, I instituted something called um, what I call like moments of gratitude. And so we start every class with giving, I will turn over the floor to the students and I have them share things that they're thankful for or grateful for, things they're excited about, looking forward to. And it's a way for them to just establish um, a way of community building within the classroom. And over the course of the semester, it's really um, helped to build a strong rapport within the classroom. And it's times, it's a way for us to share things that are, are hopeful and positive and encouraging. And we've learned about students who have signed record contracts, gotten into graduate school or law school, or even they've been able to share about things that they're you know, worried about, like grandparents who are you know, struggling with cancer or surgeries. But then over the course of the semester, they've gotten good reports back about those same grandparents. And over time, we've sort of collectively collectively been able to share in the space of you know, joy about those things. And you know, so even small things about, I got a box of cookies from my mom, you know? And so it's been a really wonderful thing um, uh, that, that has really, so we've all kind of you know, looked forward to it, and it to the point where students are like, I know it's the end of class, Dr. Myers, but I just got some really good news. Can I share? And I'm like, of course you can share. And so, you know, moments of gratitude have, have come at the end of class too. Um, the other thing that I've done is I've very, you know, practically, I, I basically eliminated the final uh, paper and I turned it into an extra credit assignment because I saw how much the students were struggling um, and how overwhelmed they were. And so when we came back from Thanksgiving break, I said, okay, you've actually completed all the work for the semester. And if you want to turn in the final paper, it's pure bonus. And it's only going to help you. It's going to help anybody who turns it in. I mean, if you've already got an A, you got to, you don't have to do it. But anybody else who turns it in, it's going to be extra credit. And you should have seen like just, I mean, they were all just like, this is amazing. And a lot of them are still, you know, turning it in because it's only going to benefit them. Um, but I've also had like twice in the semester, I've opened up the floor and given up an entire class period of having them share what's going on, what do they need, what are they struggling with? Because again, I wanna be responsive. I wanna have those open door you know, spaces to be able to really hear what they're you know, you know, struggling with and dealing with as much as possible. Because again, like Dr. Riley said, I can direct them to DSS, Dean of Students, CAPS, but um, I can do care referrals. But at the end of the day, they need to know that someone's listening and um, that that's really, really most important. So 
I, you know, I, early October is when I realized something was wrong when I started getting enormous amounts of extension requests, more than I've ever received. And so it, it just sort of, that was when I began sort of changing a lot of internal classroom policies about, you know, assignments and structures within the class, because I might not be able to change what's happening with, you know, racial violence and climate change, but I can at least try to sort of think, do things internally in my class to make things more manageable. So Professor Mars, I, I would imagine that uh, others, others have figured out ways to make adjustments uh, to, to student needs. Um, Dr. Raleigh, you, you said something that I found interesting. Um, you said that some students have spent their entire academic career in the pandemic. And that's something that that definitely had not occurred to me. And as I listen to you all, um, I, I I can gather that you're stepping. Uh, do you feel like you're stepping outside of your professional roles more and more to have to uh, help students get through this? And if that's the case, do you also feel like we're coming to a breaking point? If not. What are the long-term effects for students, especially the ones who've only uh, spent their their academic career in the pandemic? I Anybody? Mean, I I think for me, yes. Um, this is not my area of expertise, right? When I went to graduate school, I mean, heck, <laughs> they didn't. Some of us were not even necessarily properly trained at one point to necessarily become teachers at one point. We were taught how to do research and go into the archives. And now, thankfully, we are properly training our graduate students on how to become teachers. Uh, those days are long past, thankfully, at least at places like IU. But we were certainly never, um, you know, never in, a, in, a, in our wildest dreams did we anticipate being in a situation like this where um, we would have to, you know, you know, sort of be dealing with rising levels of, you know, um, anxiety and depression and mental health issues. And that's certainly not my area of expertise. And so um, I never envisioned a day where I would be increasingly having to monitor these sorts of things, worry about it and, um, you know, submit care referrals and worry about these sorts of things. Um, I, it, I don't, and I mean, like I said, I know that my num a number of my colleagues, we've talked about this and we, we are ourselves so incredibly um, exhausted mentally and physically, emotionally. I know that for myself, if it wasn't for my faith and for the spiritual communities that I belong to, and if it wasn't for the fact that so many of us are beginning to, if not, have not already sought out professional counseling for ourselves, because if we didn't have those things in place, that we would actually be coming unglued because uh, it's beginning to fray because the two year mark is approaching on this pandemic and it's not just wearing on the students and the staff, it's wearing on, it's wearing on everybody. You go into grocery stores, you go into like the world and people are like angry, right? They're snapping, like everybody's snapping at everybody. There's signs on business doors saying, please remember to be kind, right? I go to my vet and it's, you know, they're just like, please remember to say thank you and smile. Please be kind. Please don't take your anger out on us. We're trying to help your dog. And I'm like, people are being mean to you. And they're like, you have no idea. I'm like this, these things are happening everywhere, right? That cumulative effect of almost two years, it, like people are taking their rage out on everybody. 
And so it's not just about anxiety and depression. Like I fear walking into a classroom and wondering, are students gonna, like what's gonna happen? <laughs> so I, I just don't know. It's, it's, really, it's really worrying, but I know that for myself, if I didn't have, like I said, those spiritual communities, if I didn't have good, you know, good therapist, I'm not really quite sure where I would be. Anyone else want to comment on that? Yeah, I would. I would say I. I don't know. I. I totally feel what um, Professor Myers is saying about you know how some people might not have been trained for this in graduate school and or to even teach. Um, so for me, it's a. It's a little bit. It's a little bit different, and, and James might feel the same way too. In that, I don't feel like I'm stepping outside of my role, but I do feel like I'm putting on a different hat. And so a lot of times working with students, um, yes, there are times when I have to sort of be in teaching mode, um, but then there are other times when I'm in mentorship mode in which I put on my, my therapist hat and sort of the training that I've had around how to engage with people in relationships. And so that's been a little bit easier for me than I can imagine it would be for some of my colleagues who are in different departments. Um, the other thing that that makes me sort of think like I'm, I'm not stepping outside of my role too much um, is that I teach secondary um, students who wanna be secondary um, ed, teachers. Um, so people who want to be in counseling, people who want to be teachers, people who want to work with youth. Um, and a lot of my classes on um, trying to debunk the myths, the myths that we have about adolescence and how restrictive we can sometimes be and how we don't give grace to the developing mind and the developing body. Um, and so in my class, I try to set for them an example of how they are supposed to be doing this uh, when they are working with teenagers. For some reason, when, when you hit 13, people forget all things and the main thing that they wanna do is sort of restrict um, teenagers in a way because they, they fear that. Um, and so when I step into the classroom, I really try to provide examples for students on how to engage with students in a way that helps to build relationships, that helps to build community, classroom climate and allows them to be free and to explore. Um, and so my hope is that in doing that, they sort of um, have an understanding of, of where I'm coming from and how they can address me in class um, and what type of questions, what type of problems they can come to me with when it comes to uh, what they're dealing with personally. So I try to do that in a way. Um, and then again, I'm, I kind of just put on my therapist hat when I have to mentor students who are working with me in, in research related areas. So, but I totally get how other people on campus might be very concerned about students and very concerned about how to address this um, with students because of their training and because of their backgrounds they have. Yeah, and to, to um, echo much of what Dr. Riley has said, um, being um, sort of uh, trained to train trainers um, or the trained therapists, uh, essentially, um, I actually run to the other end of things of uh, making sure that I'm not um, uh, engaging in therapy uh, with, with um, students as they're dealing with this. Um, but as Dr. Riley was saying, the, the, the desire, the need, necessity really to, um, to model uh, what it is that I'm sort of teaching and being a part of um, for students um, is important. So it's important that we understand context, like what is going on in people's lives uh, holistically, what else is, is occurring for them? Um, how can we show uh, compassion and even model compassion for uh, clients um, that, that we may have uh, in much the same way, I see that mentoring relationship as, um, as doing the same, right? Uh, and so as, as I think about what my role is as a, as a the faculty member as it includes those things. And certainly there are different hats that are more prominent and more aware, um, uh, more salient in any particular moment. Um, so it feels like very natural um, for, for me. Uh, I do wonder about kind of like that, that breaking point uh, question. Um, I think when the pandemic first began, right, there was all this pent up energy, this response, what are we going to do towards an old uh, society world? 
um, as, as a whole, it turns to the issues of racial um, uh, justice or injustice rather. Um, now that that's kind of gone and it's sort of lost its, um, it's further for folks who uh, aren't living out in the day-to-day -day experiences, um, that pent up anxiety, that feeling of the, the angst that exists is seeping out in other ways, um, attention being a part of other, other areas. And unfortunately it can come out in very um, destructive ways, right? Interpersonally with, with other folks, um, people that we feel we may have control over, obviously teenagers, um, a fast food worker, um, if there's a, a lack of patience um, that I think kind of has been exhibited um, and it's kind of manifesting in a, in a way that things feel very different um, now. Um, our master's program, like it's just a two year program. And so those are folks who, you know, maybe spend less than 50% of other classes in space with um, their cohort members who typically they go through all the trials and tribulations, the ups and downs of training um, with, they don't have that now. Um, so what's it gonna be like to, to understand collaboration and the value of that for your own uh, professional development? Uh, certainly the, the, the impact of the pandemic for um, learning and development um, will still have ramifications but even outside of whenever things get back to a place to where folks feel more comfortable um, and there's not this kind of spillover effect, there are these lasting impacts that we are yet to kind of see what, what they are. I think it is going to be important for institutions to realize, however, that it's not just the students that are going to need support, but faculty and staff as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's that's kind of what what I've been running into, especially with um, even with new faculty staff, um, particularly the ones that I usually inter interact with, which are black faculty and staff who um, you know, are trying to deal with their own transition to a new place, but then also the environment um, for for themselves and also for the students. And I think, um, you know, one person made the comment to me, and and I think we can be we can be critical of um, institutions, uh, especially those that we work with and work for alongside. And I think that that's one thing that um, I've kind of heard across the board with with this is that there's so much going on and so many things happening, but sometimes um, faculty and staff are sometimes in, in the background of all of this and kind of the last ones to be thought about um, when it comes to like supporting students. And, um, you know, so we're like, hey, don't forget about it. You know, as we as we help our students, as we support our students. Um, so it, it's real, that's been difficult to contend with a lot for the past few months, especially. Um, and so I wanted to, to mention, um, well, one, I was curious for, for those of you in the classroom, and I know you mentioned labs, um, Dr. Riley, your research labs, and, um, but I'm wondering, are you all teaching virtually or hybrid or completely in person? I am in person. So I am teaching undergraduate students and graduate students with mask on in, in the classroom, yeah. Um, and my research lab is meeting in person. They have the option to meet via Zoom, um, but as I mentioned, you know, just the nature of my lab is that we work with uh, Black adolescents and we work on things like racial discrimination and emotional regulation. So most of the students in my lab are, are uh, students of color, um, predominantly Black students, and so they have the option to Zoom, but they're they're there every other week to to see people who look like them who you know they haven't seen because of the year and a half that they that they've been online. So. So I've been doing, uh, one of my classes has been um, online, um, synchronously online. So we meet twice a week. Um, the other class has been in person. 
um, masks on, socially distanced, but in the room together. So I've had both experiences this semester. And unfortunately for me, my, my classes remain um, virtual and uh, asynchronous. And so the um, ability for my uh, students to connect with one another, um, I've, I've tried different techniques um, certainly to do that. But I know that for me, um, I'm feeling that missingness right, um, of the synchronous time, the, the sort of the, the in-person uh, components of it. Um, but I also have my real concerns around COVID and sort of the spread. And so that's where I find myself. Um, but I certainly think that certainly the modality um, of, of teaching has an incredible impact on um, all the things that we're discussing. Yeah, absolutely. And I asked that because um, I was sharing at the beginning that I, I teach um, Hudson and Holland College, which is like the largest first year class on campus, like close to 330 students. And this semester, um, we were, of course, toying, toying with how are we going to teach this many people at one time? And they have their smaller discussion sections. But um, so Dr. Carl Darnell, who I, who I teach with and who works, I work with with this class, um, you know, he was like, well, students want to be, in, they, some of them want to be in person and they don't want, don't want to be isolated. And, you know, there's this need to just be around people. And for, for people who have, you know, we've been on lockdown and inside the house and people just want to be out. And, and even students were saying that, like, I don't care if I have to wear a mask. I don't care if I have to sit six feet apart. I want to be in the space with students. So I'm just walking around with Lysol and mask and you know, just like everywhere. And so the first day of the semester, um, when classes started in August, the first day of classes, we got a notification 30 minutes before class that there had been a COVID, um, like someone had COVID and they reported it and they had just been in our classroom. So we're scurrying like, what are we gonna do? Class starts in 30 minutes, it's the first day of class. And you know, students, they're probably getting to class an hour early so they know where they're going. And this is a psych building. And so um, Psych 100, and so we were scurrying to send out these messages, like mass messages and, you know, sending messages and different, you know, instructors send to your students, then I'm gonna send a mass message. And it was just crazy. And it felt like, I mean, I'm probably being a little dramatic, but it just really felt like, a, it was just crazy. Um, and I just remember that moment changing the trajectory of the whole semester. Like we made it through, but I just remember students constantly worrying, what are we gonna do next? If this happens again, are we gonna go, like, are we gonna stay online for the rest of the semester? Like, you know, so it was just all these questions and it was just a lot to deal with. Um, so I was just wondering about your mode of teaching and how you had to be flexible with that, um, you know, when people are feeling sick or if they're, you know, they've had family members, like how you're adjusting and what that does for your own flow. Um, so I'm just wondering like what, how you've navigated having to make all of these like in the moment types of changes if you've had those types of experiences. Well, I'm sorry, go ahead, go right no, ahead. That's fine. Um, I know that with my in-person class, you know, anyone that has been ill or has had an ill family member, they've had the option to zoom in. Um, now that the technology is available, we just, you know, we, we do that. And so it's, you know, we've got the technology in the room, you know, people have zoomed in. And in fact, there was one week where um, I actually, there were things going on at my house that made it really complicated. And we just held the whole class on Zoom that week. And so it's, um, I think that that's one of the, the nice things about having the flexibility to be able to, 
if one person has to zoom in, we can still hold class. Um, if I have to zoom, then everybody zooms and we have you know class on Zoom that week. Um, you know the the synchronous online class. Um, that's you know the nice thing about that is that students are still able to participate even if they're not feeling well. They can still join in on class. They have the ability to keep their cameras off if they're not feeling well. They you know I have them in small groups and they can still meet in their small groups and do small group work. And, and so that, it provides a lot of freedom and flexibility in different ways, um, whereas they would have to just miss class altogether if we were in the physical room space. Um, and so there's a lot of things that, that Zoom affords us the flexibility of doing. Um, so both of my classes, I've been able to use technology to sort of allow people to come in and out and not miss class if they're sick and having to tend to siblings or, or grandparents or if they're sick themselves, they, they can still come to class, which is nice. For our WFHB audience, we're, we're having a discussion about youth mental health, health on campus. And we're speaking with Professor Amrita Myers, Dr. Tanisha Riley, and Dr. James Brooks, all from Indiana University. Um, Professor Myers, you asked a question in your post, what exactly can we do beyond what we're already doing? Uh, but I want to ask you, what would you like to see from Indiana University? What would you like to see the university do to address some of the issues that you raise? Well, understand first, William, that I, I think that every university, including IU, has been caught off guard. And mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're all sort of playing catch up in a sense. I don't think, I mean, it's not like we have anything to fall back on in terms of knowledge necessarily. I mean, the Spanish flu happened almost, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, but I think that I think that it would have been wise for IU to have humanists on their response team. Their entire response team to this pandemic has been uh, people who are in the medical sciences, and I think that it would have really been wise for them to actually have um, historians um, because we actually have people in my department who specialize in the history of um, the Black Death and the history of Spanish influenza and things of that nature. And they actually could have told you that this was coming. And it's so, you know, that hindsight is actually not, you know, it's not, it wouldn't have caught people off guard necessarily because we have specialists who teach courses on, on these things. They could have also told you that, um, that we would be facing an economic crisis and, a, and um, lack of workers, for example because these things have happened before when you have a, when you have a pandemic. So um, I, while I don't fault IU for and other institutions for now going, holy cow, what do we do? I think it would be really important to bring uh, not just you know, medical experts and mental health professionals on board with the you know, pandemic response team, but humanists as well because we have something to say. And I think it would be really important that, you know, in addition to obviously bringing more experts, you know, who are trained in mental health, you know, to, you know, help assist in places like, you know, CAPS um, on board. I actually think that we need to talk to the students. And what I mean by that is that I actually think we need to bring students into the conversation instead of simply doing a top down thing and saying, we must help you. We need to actually bring them into the conversation and say, what is it that you need us to do as an institution? Because I think too often we don't have those lateral conversations and that's I think really, really important. 
Um, because the older I get, the more I realize, the less I know. And um, I think that it's really, I've been here for you know 17 years now and I've been teaching for 20. And I think that it's really important that students be brought into the conversation. What do they need from us? Is it just a matter of more um, mental health professionals? Um, because I know that what a lot of my students have told me is that they actually are hungry. They need food. Um, they actually are having a hard time paying rent. And there's four of them living in a one bedroom apartment because Bloomington has become so unaffordable that they can no longer afford to live here because of all the high, high rise condos that are going up everywhere. So there's economic insecurity, there's food insecurity, right? And those things are exacerbating mental health conditions. They're, they're working three jobs um, or they're finding a hard, you know, they're having a hard time finding jobs that can make it affordable for them to live here. What can we do? Well, we might need to look at tuition issues. We might need to look at the, those are the kinds of things that we will not know until we bring them into the conversation because hiring more counselors is not going to help if we don't actually alleviate the conditions that are exacerbating their anxiety and stress in the first place. Because I have students who are going to Crimson Cupboard every week so that they can get put enough food on the table to eat. So that's what I would say. Anyone else want to take a stab at that? Dr. Riley? Yeah, sure. I, I will agree with Dr. Um, with Dr. Myers that, you know, I am always saying that I'm an advocate for adolescents. So student voices, ultimately, um, I think the way that um, institutions should go. Um, one of the things that happened for me or, or something that I questioned often during the pandemic and, and sort of what we're going through is what is this for? Um, so I think institutions, including IU, and a lot of just the way that we have worked in the world, we've been running the same game for so long and COVID sort of put that at a halt and really made me think about what, what is this for? What is the goal? What is it that we're trying to accomplish and, and sort of what is this for? So is the adjustment um, to place you back in a situation in which um, we have not previously dealt with or is the adjustment to um, change something and, and make something new and try to help people in ways that we haven't before? Um, so that's often a question that I have and I think that institutions should be asking and they should be asking students what, what their goals are. I think for, you know, if, if I can be a bit critical for some time, um, students have still been paying large amounts of tuition and getting through this sort of checkbox curriculum um, the sort of checkbox, do this, do this, do that, in the hopes of finding a, a decent job. And that's that economic stability has not been there for a very long time. Um, and students are even more concerned about it because of the COVID um, pandemic. And so um, what are we adapting for? What are we adjusting for? Um, are we trying to get back to normal? But what will the new normal look like? I don't know. Um, but I think we have to think about what is ultimately what is the goal of students and how should we be helping them address that? Yeah, you won't find much disagreement with, with, from me at all with that. I think paying attention to the stakeholders and realizing that um, universities, um, so we not necessarily no longer quite unique, but um, our, our product is also the consumer, right? Our students are paying to, to be here and they are in many ways the metric by which we are judged and our ability and what we're doing for the right of our job. Um, and what that does is ultimately depersonalize the student, right? Dehumanizes right, the students. Um, and so that being lost um, and not recognized um, within the system, the system in and of itself is going to have, have 
flaws is going to be challenged. Um, I think, yes, to, as, as Professor Myers was, was mentioning, like there are, having more counselors and not addressing larger issues is going to be um, not helpful. But I even think that even the notion of having more counselors, right, you have to see that just having more counselors, even if it were to address the concerns that folks are having in our mediation way, uh, counseling isn't necessarily getting to the folks who sort of need it. I mean, isn't relevant to the folks um, who may most benefit from it, right? It, it's not a culturally competent sort of thing. It's, it's not coming to a space um, on someone else's time um, to look for healing, right? Um, or to look for improvement. Oftentimes going into that space and doing outreach and finding out what is really needed here, doing that assessment is what is tr truly, truly important. Now, of course, like I don't get paid the big bucks. Um, I imagine making those decisions um, of what to do, to be on campus, um, to be in person. Um, it was not a decision that was easy um, and certainly was one that had a lot of contingencies uh, in it. Um, but the fallout and sort of seeing how can we look at this um, if things don't go the way we want or the way that we anticipate, um, those are things that could have been planned for. Um, and that's just not a critique of Indiana University, but certainly of any institution um, that operates at that level at this um, scale. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's this, um, particularly for those of us, for Black folks that are in these roles um, or in people of color, there's just this added pressure and burden to help create spaces. Um, I'm seeing a lot of, you know, of course, I want to do this and I want, my staff wants to do this. We want to make people, make our students feel whole and like they're being listened to and heard. But there's also, you know, from the administration, I need you to do this and, you know, diversity, that's it. Um, and so I'm also wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about kind of back to what Dr. Meyer said earlier about the faculty staff component. Um, we talked about like how the institution can respond um, with students. But I'm also wondering if you have thoughts about like what are some specific things that institutions can do to support um, individuals who are in these roles supporting the students, if you have any specific things that, that you think um, institutions could take on or implement or um, heighten a little bit during this time. For me, uh, normalizing uh, wellness, uh, normalizing, um, we'll call it mental health days, these sorts of, like really normalizing that, right? Um, and that takes uh, the shape of like, not just like PTO, but like how are folks treated um, when they are saying that I have these concerns, like how are those concerns being heard and being responded to? How are folks being treated when they, even by the virtues of their, their hiring contract, are guaranteed some days um, off? Um, how is that being brought back to them? Um, are there, is there still an expectation? You can do all this work before you do that and, and leave, right? Are we communicating and prioritizing sort of uh, wellness uh, in the policies and the ways in which we're interacting with folks? Um, and in some ways, yes, that can be on an individual level. I could have a bad supervisor. I could have um, a director or a head of a department um, that isn't doing this well. But when that becomes multiple folks, um, it becomes normalized. It becomes institutionalized. Um, and so if even uh, if in policies, there is this effort for wellness and an attention to uh, wellness, what does it look like in practice? Um, like, where does that mean the role? And really sort of listening to it and, and hearing those those folks, um, I think is, is, is critically important, right? That um, we prioritize that, that wellness. And it looks a bit different. And in many ways, it can be counted to what our, our culture is, right? In this very sort of capitalistic work, work, work sort of a environment um, to be allowed to take a pause, expected to take a pause, right? It can be a, a challenge, which kind of brings you back to the, the point I made earlier, where there's this expectation that we should 
persevere, when we should push through, we should resist. And ultimately we find that folks are resilient to a lot of things, but do they need to be? Right? Do we need to show this sort of strength? Do we need to show this sort of bouncing back? Um, the answer to that isn't always a, a yes. Um, Yeah, you've asked a really important question. <laughs> I have a, I have a, I have thoughts. <laughs> Gloria, I have thoughts. Uh, <laughs> we can't wait to hear what they are. Well, honestly, I think that they could ask us to, they could stop asking us to do more work um, because, right? Um, they could stop asking us to do more work because this is, Every time I turn around, there's um, a request for us to do more. And we understand that, you know, you're already doing so much and we appreciate everything you're doing, but could you do four more things? Um, I, I think they could ask us to, to, they could stop asking us to do more. And in fact, um, you know, understanding the pressures that we're under, particularly black and brown faculty, BIPOC faculty and staff, um, if we're going to hire more mental health professionals, uh, counselors, therapists, which I think we need, um, I think understanding the changing demographics of our student population and understanding the stress and pressures that BIPOC faculty are under, particularly since there are so few of us on this campus, um, and understanding and appreciating the $30 million diversity initiative that President Whitten has unveiled, we need more people who look like Dr. Brooks, Dr. Riley, myself, and you, Dr. Howell, right? We need more people who look like us on this campus. It's as simple as that. We need to hire more black and brown faculty and staff at all levels, not just administrators, who by the way, are the ones who make the big dollars, right? <laughs> we need to hire more black faculty, brown faculty, BIPOC faculty and staff. We need to ask people like us to do less, but that means hiring more people in order to share and distribute the workload. I would love to see mental health be covered in terms of our health insurance so that more of us are able to access it so that we don't have to pay for it. How much more time we got? Because I have ideas. You find yourselves using, using the same coping mechanisms as, as your students use. <laughs> well, according to the national surveys, it's so they're doing suicidal ideation and substance abuse. <laughs> so, I mean, look, yeah. I don't, what I heard is that when the pandemic hit, alcohol sales skyrocketed across this country. Like they could not keep toilet paper and booze on the shelves. <laughs> well, we have about uh, two minutes left. Does anyone want to leave us with some parting wisdom? Uh, oh, I don't know about away. parting. <laughs> I don't know about parting wisdom, um, but one of the things that I think people are trying to do um, that maybe institutions have not recognized um, because of maybe who's who's on these these sort of um, leadership boards for the pandemic is to uh, build relationships with people, to rebuild those relationships. Um, one, of the things we know, one of the things we know about social isolation and relationships is it does have an impact on how you regulate and how you cope with stress, right? So our bodies are trying to maintain homeostasis. Um, and oftentimes one of the ways that we cope with stress is to just speak to other people or to be around other people or to build relationships in ways um, that make you feel comforting. And so I feel that people are trying to get there. That's one aspect that may 
quote unquote, go back to normal in, in some ways. Um, but I think we also have to think about the larger sort of systemic issues that persist um, that help that sort of have held people down from being able to um, think about their wellness. So I love what uh, Dr. Brooks said about those expectations that you can you can say that we're for wellness, you can say, you know, sort of that these are your days off and that you should be relaxing. But what does that look like in practice? Um, what are people are they still holding the same expectations that they felt before? Will I feel bad about taking a day off? Those are the types of things that I think um, people are considering or thinking about um, and just wanting to continue to build relationships um, in the meantime. No, this has all uh, been very interesting. I, I would never have known that students were under such uh, mental stress from just, just going through the pandemic and everything else associated with it. So after we're done here tonight, I'm going to pick up the phone and uh, reach out to some nieces, nephews, and grandkids and do a, a mental wellness check and see how they're doing. So on that note, we want to thank Dr. Tanisha Riley, Assistant Professor in the Counseling and Educational Psychology Department. Dr. James Brooks, Assistant Professor of Counseling Psychology at Indiana University and Professor Amrita Myers, longtime Bring It On contributor and a Ruth N. Hall's Associate Professor of History and Gender Studies at IU for joining us to shed light on the myriad of issues impacting the mental state of college students in general and how they appear to be coping during a pandemic era. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org, wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Again, the email address is bringiton at wfhb.org. Also, if you have an event or happening that the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to our Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about anything you've heard tonight, you can contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring It On's executive producer is Clarence Spoon, assistant producer William Hosea, show consultant and WFHB news department director is Cade Young, program engineer is Chantal LaFontant, Original theme music was created by Jamil Ethiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Gloria Howell. I'm William Hosea. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.